A reminder that our next episode, we will answer listener questions. Send us your questions at highcrimesinhistory at gmail.com or message us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Reddit. Today's episode is taken from the ancient writings of Herodotus, Plutarch, Lactinius, Lucian, and inscriptions of the Babylonian kings. This episode contains graphic descriptions of violence that are not suitable for everyone. Please use discretion before listening. What do you think is the worst way to die? I'll tell you, I'm terrified of being eaten alive. I chalk up that fear to my babysitter deciding to show me Jurassic Park when I was three years old. Oh, he loves dinosaurs. He'll get a kick out of this. And then I've had nightmares about velociraptors for the rest of my life. And then there's these children's books set in the Star Wars universe, but they were like way more mature than a seven-year-old could handle. Galaxy of Fears, and there's another series, I can't remember. But both of them had people being eaten alive, one of them by a planet. Sharks, tigers, chimpanzees, xenomorphs. If it's eaten a person, I'm noping out. I wonder what triggers that. I don't have those same primal urges or fears with, like, say, beheading. What makes the difference? A philosopher friend of mine posited once that sexual fetishes are tied to the first sexual experiences. I think that maybe with traumatic, violent deaths, not just something like cancer, but an out-of-the-blue, cruel and unusual death, humans have a similar response to that first encounter. A book, a film, God forbid a real moment. It makes us come to grips with the terrifying thought that this could be us. And then what I find fascinating is that that thought then leads us to reacting against something that's extremely unlikely. Like, for example, Katie is afraid of shark attacks. She won't go in the ocean, refuses to even take a plane across an ocean. I'm afraid of accidental impalement, so much so that I refuse to drive behind vehicles that are carrying long, thin loads like a bunch of rebar. I'm afraid they'll come loose and come through the windshield Final Destination style. The likelihood of incidents like these happening is so remote that I'm more likely to be hit by lightning. Yet these are the ones that we react to, because they made the most visceral impact on us. That response you have, that wince, that flinch, the avoidance, is precisely why cruel and unusual punishments exist. If a government can get you to fear the very thought of committing a crime, give you that reaction well, then you're a lot less likely to commit the crime in the first place. And governments know that they've instituted a cruel and unusual punishment. That's exactly what they're aiming for. As Machiavelli quipped so famously in The Prince, quote, It is much safer to be feared than loved, if one of the two has to be wanting. End quote. But he farther expanded on that, the part that nobody remembers, stating, quote, For it may be said of men in general that they are ungrateful, voluble, dissemblers, anxious to avoid danger, and covetous of gain, 
As long as you benefit them, they are entirely yours. They offer you their blood, their goods, their life, and their children, as I have before said, when the necessity is remote. But when it approaches, they revolt. For love is held by a chain of obligation which, men being selfish, is broken whenever it serves their purpose. But fear is maintained by a dread of punishment which never fails. End quote. And I think he should have added at the end, thus we learned from the Persians, one of the oldest, longest-lasting civilizations of all time, was universally feared for their unique executions of criminals and enemies. They were graphic, they were efficient, and they were effective. The Persians invented many of the execution practices from history. Some of them are still used around the world today. Others were so horrifying that they were never used again. Some are so wild that scholars wonder if they were exaggerated, even if the executions happened at all. But of course it begs the question, does it even matter whether they did? Because what mattered was that people thought they did. Because the Persians understood that it's not death that people fear. It's how they die that keeps them up at night. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. When I use the word Persians, I'm really cheating here and encompassing many of the civilizations in the region known as Mesopotamia and the Levant. Civilizations such as Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, Parthia. In many ways, this is like calling someone who lived in London 2,000 years ago British. Suffice to say, London's changed hands a few times between here and there. But it's important to note that these ancient civilizations were a lot more unbroken, at least dynastically. While there were religious and political differences, their culture in the area remained distinct from all the others surrounding it. So if you're a fan of Persian history, my apologies, but for the layman, we'll be working in a time span from 1500 BC to 200 AD, or about as much time as between the ancient Romans and today. Part of the reason why we can take such a lengthy time span is because their laws remained similar throughout the whole period. Hammurabi's Code, written by Babylonian king Hammurabi, is considered by scholars to be the first written rules of punishments for lawbreakers. Its penalties are harsh by today's standards. For example, lying of most kinds was a death sentence, but they also set up a standard for punishment that encompassed the whole empire, rather than just a village or a region. For an ancient empire that spanned most of modern-day Iran, it was important that a traveler knew the laws for one city in the empire applied to all of the rest. The laws of Persia were written as part of their religious system. One-third of their sacred writings comprised of law. They believed that human nature bent towards abiding by the law, thus breaking the law was a proof of one's lack of humanity. And their legal system was quite robust. They had a parliament that was composed of the nobility to ensure that the king did not abuse his powers, and judicial trials were required in order to sentence free peoples of Persia. Most evidence was testimonial, and although to us in modern times hearsay evidence is a poor display, in Persia, perjury was punished with death, so it was expected that most witnesses would tell the truth or forfeit their life. 
Defendants had the right to counsel, and most minor infractions also carried minor punishments, stuff like fines and jail time. The code was posted in public squares, and meeting places inscribed on a stone pillar or slab. That way, no one could use the age-old excuse, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know that was the law around these parts. These slabs were used to proclaim more than just the law, though. They told of conquests, news, and most importantly, capital punishments. Some capital punishments in Persia were similar to other punishments in the ancient world. Beheading and crucifixion come to mind. Many were killed after having their noses or ears cut off. The entire population would be invited to witness this public spectacle. Stoning is still a common form of capital punishment in the Middle East. When you read about it in books or see it in films, it looks like a bunch of people surrounding a person with baseball-sized stones ready to pitch them. In reality, it was much more brutal than that, literally crushing a person to death with stones the size of a head, like something you'd see in a Stone Age painting. Plutarch relates such an event in his writings about the Persian king Artaxerxes II. Artaxerxes' wife and his mother hated each other, constantly conniving to kill each other. It was so bad when the two ate together, all the food came from the same source and it was cut in half so that they didn't poison one another. But that didn't stop his mother. She wiped poison on one side of a knife so that when it cut the food in two, it poisoned only one side and not the other. The wife ate the poisoned side and died, but the servants were blamed for the poisoning. Plutarch writes, quote, The king learned of this, set an ambush for the servant, seized her, and condemned her to death. Now the legal mode of death for poisoners in Persia is as follows. There is a broad stone, and on this the head of the culprit is placed. And then with another stone they smite and pound until they crush the face and head to a pulp. It was in this manner then that Gyges, the servant, died. But the mother was not farther rebuked or harmed by Artaxerxes, except that he sent her off to Babylon in accordance with her wish, saying that as long as she lived, he himself would not see Babylon. Such was the state of the king's domestic affairs. End quote. Crushed the head to pulp. That's a lot more visceral than pitching rocks at someone. But it's also the tip of the iceberg for Persians' methods of execution. Before the advent of crucifixion, the most common method of publicly executing criminals was impalement. There were multiple laws that constituted impalement. For example, in Assyria, one law read, quote, If a woman with her consent brings on a miscarriage, an abortion, they seize her and determine her guilt. On a stake they impale her and do not bury her. And if through the miscarriage she dies, they likewise impale her and do not bury her. End quote. Impalement was used as a message, inasmuch as a form of execution. King Darius I, after conquering Babylon, impaled 3,000 Babylonians. On his inscription, Darius relates what happened to a pretender to the throne. Quote, Thereafter, this Phraortes, the pretender, with a few horsemen fled. Thereafter, I sent an army in pursuit. Freortes, seized, was led to me. I cut off his nose and ears and tongue and put out one eye. He was kept bound at my palace entrance. All the people saw him. 
Afterwards, I impaled him at Ekbatana, and the men who were his foremost followers, those within the fortress, I flayed and hung out their hides, stuffed with straw. End quote. This was extremely common, especially with enemies or people who were treasonous to the throne. And many of the reliefs and inscriptions show impalement outside the city walls in a multitude of ways. The most common form of impalement was longitudinal. The criminal was held down, a slice made between the anus and the genitals. A paste was covered then to the wound to stem the blood flow and grease the stake. A stake about three or four inches wide was then inserted into the wound. An executioner set it in place with strikes from a mallet. Once the stake reached near the heart and lungs, they stopped and placed the victim upright. The stake would be secured carefully to make sure that the body did not dislodge and the stake drive through the vitals, killing the criminal quickly. The victim would then be publicly displayed like that until they expired, and it was a process which could take days, since the loss of blood would be stayed by the grease. More likely, the victim would die from internal hemorrhaging, if they were lucky. If the executioners had done their job right, well then, no internal organs would be pierced, and they would die from dehydration or the elements. An account of a Jewish man condemned to die in the 16th century Egypt related what it was like to be impaled if you were left there for the day. And although it's from the 16th century, keep in mind that this is the exact same procedure that would be done to somebody in ancient Persia. Quote, In this manner, he was left for some hours, during which time he spoke. Turning from one side to another, prayed those that passed by to kill him, and making a thousand wry mouths and faces, because of the pain he suffered when he stirred himself, but after dinner the Basha sent one to dispatch him, which was easily done, by making the point of the stake come out at his breast, and then he was left till next morning, when he was taken down because he stunk horridly. End quote. I really can't think of any more barbaric execution than impalement, and neither could the Persians. You see, Neo-Assyrians impaled their victims by inserting the stake immediately under the ribs, driving it up and through the back or neck, killing them much quicker, because it was more humane. In fact, the earliest forms of crucifixion were adopted by the Persians because they considered it more humane than longitudinal impalement. And when crucifixion is a kinder sentence, that says volumes about the torture inflicted upon criminals. Honestly, reading these accounts shocked me. It frightened me. It made me shudder and tingle and want to shut off my computer and the books and walk away. It's revolting. That's the reaction the kings of Persia were going for. You see, the kings of Persia believed that horrific executions would strike fear into their own populace and their enemies and make them toe the line. They took pride in inventing new executions, so much so that they inscribed them permanently on their slabs of accomplishments. Darius wrote on his, after discussing his victories and exploits that included impaling 3,000 people, quote, Now let that which has been done by me convince thee. Thus to the peoples impart, do not conceal it. If this record thou shalt not conceal, but tell it to the people. End quote. These kings wanted to provoke a reaction. 
because they believed fear is power, and power is everything to an ancient king. For example, one common execution for enemies was flaying, literally skinning alive. But the kings of Persia intentionally took this a step farther, intending to use the executions to send a message. Ashurnasipal II was king of Assyria from 883 to 859 BC. He crushed a revolt of the city of Tela and described what he did to its inhabitants on his standard inscription, quote, I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all of the chiefs who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes round the pillar. I cut off the limbs of the officers who had rebelled. Many captives I burned with fire, and many I took as living captives. From some I cut off their noses, their ears and lips, and their fingers, of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads, and I bound their heads to posts round the city. Their young men and maidens I consumed in fire. Twenty men I captured alive, and I immersed them in the walls of the palace. The rest of their warriors I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. End quote. That was an inscription that was supposed to stand in the city center for all time, and that's what he wanted written on it. Another example is from Herodotus's The Histories. Herodotus was a Greek historian widely considered the first historian who traveled to Persia to document the Persian Wars. He relates a story about Sisamenes, a judge in Persia that accepted a bribe and wrongly condemned a man. Herodotus wrote that King Cambyses II had him executed. Quote, Cambyses cut his throat and flayed off all of his skin because he had been bribed to give an unjust judgment. Then he cut leather strips of the skin which had been torn away, and with these he covered the seat upon which Sisamenes had sat to give judgment. After doing this, Cambyses appointed the son of the slain and flayed Sisamenes to be judge in his place, admonishing him to keep in mind the nature of the throne on which he was sitting. End quote. How terrifying would it be to be ordered by the king to sit on a throne made from your father's skin, and knowing that if you refuse, you'll end up just like him. That's the fear, the terror, the Persian kings wanted the population to feel in wronging them. Now we should step back and ask an obvious question. How do we know these punishments actually occurred? I mean, they seem ludicrously over the top, like something fictional. We should keep in mind that many of these writings that exist on Persia are written by Greeks and Romans, many of them anti-Persians themselves. It goes without saying that they were not the most reliable accounts. For example, Lactinitus was an early Christian author and advisor to Constantine I who held a hatred for the Persians due to their persecution of Christians. He wrote about the death of Roman Emperor Valerian, who was captured as a prisoner of war by the Persians. His execution is fairly poetic and somewhat suspect. Quote, he, having been made prisoner by the Persians, lost not only that power which he had exercised without moderation, but also the liberty of which he had deprived others. 
and he wasted the remainder of his days in the vilest condition of slavery. For the king of the Persians, who had made him prisoner, whenever he chose to get on his carriage or to mount on horseback, commanded the Roman emperor to stoop and present his back. Then setting his foot on the shoulders of Valerian, he said, with a smile of reproach, This is true, and not what the Romans delineate on board or plaster. Valerian lived for a considerable time under the well-merited insults of his conqueror, so that the Roman name remained long the scoff and derision of the barbarians. And this also was added to the severity of his punishment, that although he had an emperor for his son, he found no one to revenge his captivity and most abject and servile state. Afterward, when he had finished this shameful life under so great dishonor, he was flayed, and his skin, stripped from the flesh, was dyed with vermilion, and placed in the temple of the gods of the barbarians, that the remembrance of a triumph so signal might be perpetuated, and that this spectacle might always be exhibited to our ambassadors, as an admonition to the Romans that, beholding the spoils of their captive emperor in a Persian temple, they should not place too great confidence in their own strength." End quote. The legends that other Roman writers told said that instead of being flayed, he begged for his release and offered a large sum of money to do so. In these versions, the king gave him his money by pouring molten gold down his throat. The problem is, it's not quite clear any of this occurred at all. A lot of historians believe that he and his captured army lived well off for the rest of their lives, building bridges and dams for Persia, as the Roman army was well known for their engineering skills. And that's possible. Writers like Herodotus mixed fact and fiction all the time. It's entirely plausible that some of these accounts were made up. But it's also important to note that many of these execution methods, again, were written on inscriptions and slabs, and the ones that weren't? crop up in the same passages over and over. For example, several writings mention a tower of ash. Now, some of these writings are religious, such as the Jewish account in 2 Maccabees 13. Quote, There is at that place a tower 75 feet high, full of ashes, with a circular rim sloping down steeply on all sides towards the ashes, Anyone guilty of sacrilege or notorious for certain other crimes is brought up there and then hurled down to destruction. Such a manner was Menelaus, that transgressor of the law, fated to die, deprived even of burial. It was altogether just that he who had committed so many sins against the altar with its pure fire and ashes, in ashes, should meet his death. End quote. One might suppose that this is just religious superstition from a holy text, but it's also corroborated in Valerius Maximus's works. Herodotus also relates a similar room of ash in the story of the Babylonian and Egyptian princess Nitocris, who flooded a room to kill her brother's murderers. Quote, she built a spacious underground chamber. Then, with the pretense of inaugurating it, but with quite another intent in her mind, she gave a great feast inviting it to those Egyptians who knew that they had the most complicity in her brother's murder. And while they feasted, she let the river in upon them by a vast secret channel. This was all that was told of her, except that when she had done this, she cast herself into a chamber full of hot ashes to escape vengeance. End quote. 
So after killing her brother's murderers, Herodotus relates that she committed suicide by leaping into this chamber of ashes. Again, let's take all of this with a grain of salt, because there's no record of a Nitocris in Egyptian inscriptions. Most scholars believe she's either completely made up or a mistranslation of several other possible suspects. But what's important here is that Herodotus too mentions this tower, or this chamber of ash. So, at the very least, even if it's not true, these are false stories that were rumored about the Persians and their horrible execution methods, which to be clear, we know that they did have some awful execution methods. And that's perfectly fine enough for the Persians. Because remember, they want to be feared. They want people to be afraid of what they can do. And if the enemy is out there making up executions that will get people in line, then that's great. And honestly, I'm not even sure all of this is fiction. It's hard to tell because it's not like there's great archaeological records of any of these. And honestly, archaeology can be extremely unreliable because it's just pulling fragments of data and stories. It's not very great at corroboration. But even some of the most horrifying executions imaginable were done by other civilizations. Take one that you couldn't even imagine in your wildest dreams. Scathism. Scathism literally means hollowing out. It involved suspending a man between two boats, force-feeding them on sweet food until they were ready to burst, and smearing their exposed body with a mixture of it. They were left to the insects, who were attracted to their body and their own excrement that would begin to pile up around them over a manner of days. These insects burrowed into the body as they ate the man alive. The soldier Mithridates was supposedly executed in this manner, which Plutarch relates to us in his Life of Artaxerxes. Quote, the king decreed that Mithridates should be put to death in boats, which execution is after the following manner. Taking two boats framed exactly to fit and answer each other, they laid down in one of them the malefactor that suffers upon his back, then covering it with the other and so setting them that the head hands, and feet of him are left outside, and the rest of his body lies shut up within. They offer him food, and if he refuses to eat, they force him to do it by pricking his eyes. Then, after he has eaten, they drench him with a mixture of milk and honey, pouring it not only into his mouth, but all over his face. They then keep his face continually turned toward the sun, and it becomes completely covered up and hidden by the multitude of flies that settle on it. And as within the boat, he does what those that eat and drink must needs do, creeping things and vermin spring out of the corruption and rottenness of the excrement, and these, entering into the bowels of him, his body is consumed. When the man is manifestly dead, the uppermost boat being taken off, they find his flesh devoured, and swarms of such noisome creatures preying upon it, as it were, growing to his innards. In this way, Mithridates, after suffering for 17 days, at last expired. End quote. This is a terrifying method of execution, but it's also related to us by Theseus, another Greek historian considered so unreliable that the Latin satirist Lucian quipped, quote, The people who suffer the greatest torment were those who had told lies when they were alive and then written mendacious histories. Among them were Theseus of Nidus, Herodotus, and many others. End quote. So this might be a false story, 
But we do know that the same practice of being eaten alive by insects as a method of execution was performed by other civilizations, including in the area. Siberian Apache tribes both used this method. Siberians tied prisoners to trees in the boreal forests and left them to the insects, which are in a greater density than almost anywhere in the world. Sometimes 9,000 bites a minute from mosquitoes and biting flies could drain a man of their blood in only four hours. The Apaches staked prisoners over anthills, smeared them with honey, and left them to die, with one reporting, quote, Old Eskiminizen says he buried an American alive in the ground once and let the ants eat his head off, end quote. And in the 19th century, the Emirate of Bukhara imprisoned prisoners of war with assassin bugs to torture them, eventually to death. And that was right next door to the Persians. So while the historians of these Persian accounts have been unreliable in some places, in others they have historical counterparts. But honestly, how much does it matter? How much does it matter whether these executions were true, exaggerated, or fictional? I mean, I think there's enough accounts of these horrific executions that Persia committed on criminals and enemies that at least some of them, particularly the common ones, such as impalement, flaying, stoning, are true. And those that aren't have historical counterparts. If it's that we want to attribute these executions to Persia particularly, I understand why we want to know the truth. But if you aren't a Persian historian, I really don't think you care. I mean, what you're really asking is, can this be true like, at all, on its face, can human beings actually do this to one another? I think we ask that question because we want the answer to be no, or that it's not that common. It's the work of individual madmen, not rulers and governments. I think, though, we know the answer is yes, it can be done. We've seen it in the 20th century. The Holocaust, Unit 731, the Tuskegee Experiments, communist Eastern European atrocities, the U.S. Army, and Native Americans. The moment we imagined these executions could be, they were. Humans have a capacity for immense amounts of evil, and ancient Persia doesn't have a monopoly on that. Hell, ancient anything doesn't have a monopoly on that. We're almost a year of this podcast, where we cover the depth and the breadth of crime and history. The question I get asked the most is, why do you do it? Why do you study this stuff? Because I want to know what the breadth and depth of humanity is. It helps us to know who we are. More importantly, what we could be, so we can combat that in ourselves. No one imagined themselves as capable of killing another human being in such a cruel, unusual way. That's why it surprises us when we realize how capable we are. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com. Thank you.